Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Dr. Lauren Ladner is a clinical psychologist and a dedicated Buddhist practitioner. He's the author of a wonderful book called The Lost Art of Compassion, Discovering the Practice of Happiness in the Meeting of Buddhism and Psychology. Dr. Ladner and I talked recently about some of the top questions he gets from his patients each week and how he helps them not only to overcome problems, but to build joyful, meaningful lives through integrating meditation and Western psychology. We talk about the difference between selfishness and self-compassion, how to set healthy boundaries, what depression is from a Buddhist and psychological perspective, and how to treat it. So Lauren, it's a pleasure to have you on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. You and I have been Dharma friends for some time, attending retreats together, and I've enjoyed your guided meditations and the events you've organized. So it's an honor to get a chance to talk to you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I wanted us to start out with a great book that you wrote that I enjoyed called The Lost Art of Compassion. And I wonder if you could talk about why compassion is a lost art and uh, how we might regain it. You know, actually, by way of answering the question, I'll start with thanking you, actually, because it was striking me this morning as I was thinking about doing this, that, um, you know, there are so many people in the world right now who are using technology to spread misinformation or to spread craving or to spread anger or to spread hatred, which is why, this is in part an answer to your question, right? Why is compassion a lost art is that we don't focus on it. I actually thought of it this morning. I was, I was contemplating. I was thinking, wow, this personally, I view this podcast as your meditation on compassion and love and it like radiating out through technology to the world. And so I think why is it a lost art is that, you know, we don't focus on it, do we? In psychology, at the time I was trained, there was no training in love or compassion, no mention of it. And then I would talk to medical doctors and nurses and they would say, no, there was nothing in my training about that. I mean, if there's any fields that should have some degree of training and Compassion is one's directly aimed at alleviating suffering, but it wasn't included in the curriculum. It wasn't included in our way of thinking. You know, we, don't we? We put so much emphasis on, I mean, people have called it the culture of narcissism. And um, narcissism is the opposite of compassion. Hatred is not the opposite of compassion. It's narcissism, mm. right? Preoccupation with self. And our culture has gotten more and more extreme, I think. But thank goodness there are people trying to 
share the opposite of that, including you through this podcast. That's very nice of you to say. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, this idea of positive psychology was a big new idea. What was it, like 15 years ago or 20 yeah. years ago or something? And you're a psychologist, right? You're a trained psychologist, so you were probably completing your training around the time that was emerging. Can you talk about that development, how Western psychology overlaps with positive psychology? Like, how is it starting to work? You're right. They were starting to do the research right when I was doing my training. That was, the research was starting to come out. And um, it was really striking because people who were interested in positive psychology, those early researchers, made a number of points. One of which was, you know, the whole field of Western psychology grew out of, you know, a focus on symptoms, actually. There was no question, actually, initially, about the positive aspects of the psyche. That wasn't what was addressed early on. And then after that, you know, it was part of the medical system. So it was driven in large part for many years by finances. Who was going to get funding were people who were going to look at addressing a specific diagnosis? You know, and so if you, even if you look at psychology, there was a huge emphasis on creating the DSM-1 and then DSM-2, now we're up to five, mm-hmm. right, to sort of categorize illnesses if you look at it historically, they point out it was mainly for financial reasons, actually, to get funding. And so the insurance companies would also fund therapy, and so the government agencies would fund research. And so it was actually a radical step in psychology in the West to start to say, well, wait a second, there are also life-enhancing positive aspects to psychology. And if you reach those, the insight, it might actually help people, which, of course, is quite true. For me personally, as a Buddhist, I was really so thankful because our Buddhist tradition has for over 2000 years has focused on the positive aspects of psychology. Mm. You know, so there have been this research on all different like positive mental states and what ways might they protect, uh, help us be resilient, protect us from trauma, protect us from depression, protect us from anxiety, protect us from other negative states, but also in what ways might they enhance our quality of life, enhance our Mm. well-being. It's just been interesting for me and wonderful for me is I remember when I first started as psychologist, I was I helped form a group of Buddhist psychologists in this area. Mm-hmm. And I remember us talking, this is early on, about can you really introduce meditation mm-hmm. in therapy? And it was like radical, this idea. And now, of course, it's on everybody's website. Uh, I teach mindfulness and it's part of therapy. But Buddhist psychology that emphasizes love, compassion, mindfulness, other positive mental of gratitude has so helped the positive psychology movement. So there's been a humongous amount of cross-fertilization in the mm-hmm. research and in clinical practice. And for me, I use those every day. And it's not a day mm-hmm. that goes by I don't focus in some way on people's strengths and positive mm-hmm. mental states as ways of increasing their sense of meaning, their sense of purpose, mm-hmm. and also of coping with the challenges of life mm-hmm. and finding resilience. What's a specific example of some positive psychological method that you've used recently with one of your patients? I'll just give a very simple example. Just last week, I was working with a woman about conflict in her family and the very difficult interactions in a divorce context and so on. And again, the emphasis initially was on, of course, somebody's coming to a therapist, so the initial the emphasis initially is going to be on well, what's wrong, what are the problems, which is mm-hmm. good. We, we need to do that. But in order to come to the right place, I pause at a certain point, that focus on the problems that were going on in the family and connected back to her heart, which I knew was at the core, it's love for her children. Mm -hmm. And really, we paused and just focused on reconnecting away from all the stress back Mm -hmm. to the source of why she was talking in the first place, which is actually love. And she was Mm -hmm. able to feel, get back in touch with the love she has for her children. Mm -hmm. And then I said, let's come from there and coming up with the solution Mm -hmm. of what are your next steps? Not Mm -hmm. strategizing out of 
frustration with other factors that were real, but starting back from the fundamental place of love and then coming to, okay, now how do you want to intervene in this situation? Mm. A few days later, I got an email overjoyed that the thing she had come up with had worked, you know? And so I was like, so happy, but that's an example. Does anyone ever come to you though and saying, I'm feeling good and I'd like to feel great. <laughs> Occasionally, it's rare. And it's, fun. yeah, no, that does happen. I'm feeling very that's, good. Maybe not great, but very good. Yeah, that happens sometimes, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, because that's how I've heard positive psychology described sometimes is going from surviving to thriving or something yeah. like that. They say. When we were preparing for this interview, you told me that there's a number of questions you get almost every week from your patients. And I thought going through some of those would be really beneficial for our listeners because they're, sure. they're probably having some of the same questions. One of them you mentioned was that people ask, what's the difference between self-care and selfishness? You were talking about narcissism before, mm-hmm. and probably some of us might be afraid that we're narcissistic if we think about ourselves too much. Yeah, that is. And that does come up all the time. I think actually people get really confused about like what is self-care, first of all, and what is self-compassion? I used to say this before the pandemic, and then over the course of the pandemic, it's become almost a a mantra for myself as well as for patients, is genuine self-care and effective care for others are totally interdependent. In other words, you can't care for others if you're not taking care of yourself. And I guess what I've seen is that if somebody was confused about that, the pandemic has helped make it clearer, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't really be there for others. So that gets to a point, I think a really important key point, which is, in my view, Self-care and self-compassion are grounded in awareness of our interdependence, that our well-being and others' well-being are completely interdependent. And that, you know, if you're effectively taking care of yourself, that leads to taking care of others. Also, if you're actually taking care of others in an effective way, it's a version of self-care. It gives meaning to your life. It gives joy to your life. It gives happiness and connection. So those are not selfish. And taking care of yourself in order to love yourself and, and, and thereby be present lovingly to others, that's not selfishness. And selfishness, I think, and narcissism come out of confusion, really, confusion that denies our interdependence. So it thinks I can take care of myself in a way that's somehow going to protect me in the absence of others and is disconnected from others. It also denies impermanence. Selfishness and self-centeredness, narcissism, deny the truth that everything's impermanent, that our well-being and others' well-being are interdependent, and so on. Effective self-care is really, yeah, it's grounded in this awareness that I have to take care of myself in order to be present to others. And I'll just say one more point. There's one verse in a Buddhist practice I do that I was thinking about the other day where it said, in order to fulfill the welfare of myself and others. And I was like, oh, that verse is getting at that point. In Buddhism, they make this point. The better you are at effect at taking care of yourself, in other words, the more you've fulfilled your own welfare, the more you're capable of fulfilling the welfare of others. And the flip side is also true. I remember one point, many, oh, in my training, I read this point about narcissists. And it said, everybody knows that narcissists are bad at empathy and at understanding the needs of others. And this expert in narcissism said, what people miss is narcissists are just as bad or worse at understanding their own needs. And so they do things to make themselves happy that actually cause them suffering. Mm-hmm. And if you watch a narcissist, that's true. In other words, they try to make themselves happy in a way that actually doesn't take care of themselves. So that's the core difference also, is that self-care actually leads to your own well-being and also to the well-being of others. Self-centeredness, not only is it not helpful to others, but it actually harms yourself because you're not being realistic about what actually causes you happiness. And what would be a good way to take care of yourself and to create a cause for your own happiness? I was thinking about that after our last 
after you and I touched bases on the email a little bit, and I wanted to almost go through, like, put this in terms of self-compassion for a second. Thinking, oh, you could do almost like a self-compassion hierarchy of needs or something. It was striking me that oftentimes I, when I'm working with people, the first step, I think, is just nonviolence, actually, which is an extreme point. But you can't address the deeper versions of self-compassion if you're being violent to yourself. And I mean nonviolence in the sense that God used Ahimsa, because many people in our country, our culture, say things to themselves every single day, sometimes thousands of times a day, that are horrible. I can't tell you how many times I, I talk with somebody. They'll say something that they thought, and I'll say, imagine saying that to your best friend, or imagine saying that to your child, or imagine saying that to a coworker. And they would say, I would never say that to somebody else. That's horrible. You know, how, how often do people say, I'm an idiot? What the hell is wrong with you? You're much worse than that. You know, like, I'm a this and I'm a that. You know, kind of all kinds of insults to themselves. And they sometimes think they're motivating themselves or they think they're trying to improve themselves. It doesn't work. There's good research, scientific research, showing that's not an effective way of change. So I some of them say the first level of self-compassion is stop saying horrible things to yourself. A second level or another related one is stop treating yourself. You know, there are people who like you know, live and work outside the Washington, D.C. area. I don't know if it's the same in other parts of the country quite as much. But, you know, there are often people I talk to where they'll say, oh, I, I worked 73 hours last week. And I don't know why I'm tired or something. <laughs> That's cruel, actually, isn't it? I'm like, in other words, if a boss demanded you work 73 hours a week regularly, that would be horrifying. To me, those are being violent to yourself, actually, being cruel to yourself. Then you get to very basic things that we all know. Are you actually doing the basic things to actually take care of yourself? Like, you know, so meditation, exercise, eating healthy, so on. Having social connection. The scientific research now is that loneliness is worse for your health than smoking cigarettes. Hmm. That's amazing. You know, you'll die faster by being lonely. And I mean, smoking cigarettes is terrible for us, but loneliness is worse for our health and our longevity. So staying socially connected would be in that list. So that the second level, I would say, is basically like taking care of your body so that you can be present with others. Mm -hmm. And then I get to the third level of self-compassion, which I would describe as then starting to look at what are the deeper causes of our suffering. Many Western psychological approaches address that, and also many, much of Buddhist psychology addresses that. And with a recognition that happiness is a mental state, primarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Suffering is a mental state. And so to actually look at your own experience and ask, what in my experience causes me to suffer? And we usually, when people start out, they think it's external things. Yeah. But it's our mind, because our mind is the source of happiness. Our mind is the source of suffering. And so to ask, what are the actual causes of my well-being or my suffering and actually do you mind if i go off on a small tent is it all right if i share of course a, yeah a absolutely here? absolutely yeah in one way it's a cliche to say happiness and suffering come in the mind but actually i wanted to share like a personal reflection which came at a certain point in my own life I, you know i was being a therapist and i was working with patients and i would see people and it would strike me that they had everything other people on the planet want whereas they made much more money than i did they were good looking, they had a beautiful house, they had an expensive car, they had an attractive spouse, they had children, and they wanted to die. They wanted to kill themselves. Wow. And I would go from work where I was trying to help somebody not kill themselves. Then I would go, and I was at the time, my teacher, one of my teachers, Reba Rinpoche, was in the area and he had cancer. And I was taking him to chemotherapy appointments. And one day we were sitting in a chemotherapy appointment and I was sitting with him and I looked at him and I realized he was happier 
he was in his 80s, he had cancer and he was dying of cancer and he was getting chemotherapy. And I realized he was happier than I've ever been in my life and happier than anyone I knew. And so did everybody, like everybody around him could tell. A nurse came up to me and she was crying actually. And she said, how can I meet someone like him? He's the most blissful, beautiful person I've ever met. <laughs> and the doctor was, even an oncologist started like tearing up talking to yeah. And, I, and that for me was a moment where I realized, oh, it's not a cliche and it's not a metaphor where his happiness literally comes from the mind. Because he could be in a chemotherapy appointment and blissful. Somebody else could have driving from their beautiful house to a great job and a beautiful car and want to drive off the bridge. And I would realize, oh, it's not a metaphor. It's literally true. <laughs> the story about their patient who was suicidal is so sad. I mean, is someone in that state by definition also depressed? Yeah, yeah, that person was certainly depressed. Most of the time of somebody's, most people who, are, who have suicidal thoughts are depressed or, or have bipolar disorder. It's possible to have suicidal thoughts without depression, but most of the yeah. time. And what is depression? I know there's a clinical definition, but with your understanding being a Buddhist practitioner as well, like what is depression and uh, how do you treat it from that middle way perspective where you have the psychological and the Buddhist background? One point I'll make actually that, actually I'll share this <laughs> That same teacher of mine, Reva Rinpoche, one day, right before he left to go back to India, he said to me, if, if people ask you, he said, be sure to tell them that it's good to take medical treatment and then also to meditate mm -hmm. and do both, not just one. And I found that to be a useful point. Like, I mean, there are many ways to describe depression, but one way I'll describe it is they did a wonderful research study using mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to prevent relapses. And one thing they found, and one of the things that that study found that some other studies found was that rumination on negative topics could bring about a episode of depression. And so my view nowadays has been that a um, person has to first of all have some genetic, some predisposition to being able to become depressed. Some people don't have that predisposition, just like some people don't have predisposition to diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever. But if you have a biological predisposition to depression, and this is important, and then you ruminate on negative things about yourself, about your life, about the world, eventually that rumination becomes a habit mm -hmm. and also leads to biochemical changes in the body mm -hmm. if you do it long enough. So if somebody has that predisposition and then they spend enough time ruminating on negative things, mm -hmm. it induces psychological and also biological changes that have to be addressed. And so that's where that research study was interesting was people, if they took an antidepressant, it could change the biological component of it. But if they continue to ruminate, then when they got off the antidepressant, they would have a relapse. Whereas if people learned to not ruminate and to replace negative ruminative thoughts about negative topics with either neutral things or positive things, that would protect their biology from having another physiological depressive episode and it would protect their mind from the negative thoughts and feelings of depression. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of us who interact with depressed people, it could be, that can seem obvious, but... They don't like it too much when you say, stop thinking about all this. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> so what do you do? Like, how do you help somebody like that? I, you know, actually, I, I'll, I'll share this too. I sometimes actually, as a psychologist, I sometimes differentiate two different things. The first is, and I'll use that example of, I'm not using a specific person, but many people have seen who are like that person I described, you know, the sort of having good things in their life, but wishing they were not alive. I think before one gets to strategies, it's important to ask, is there wisdom in their depression? 
On the one hand, yes, there could be rumination, but the rumination began because the person isn't actually living the life they want to live. And so sometimes actually like listening to, I, I often say that to start with listening to the depression itself and to say, does depression have something to tell you or to teach you about how you do or don't want to live? And so to me, that's often the first step is, yeah, actually trying to learn from the symptom if it can help a person to realize maybe they want to change their life in certain ways. And then after that, I think there could be usefulness in then saying, okay, what are the actual practical strategies? Because to say don't ruminate, actually, I agree, is not helpful. What is helpful, though, is to come up with what are the topics of rumination? And oftentimes, if I say to somebody, well, how do you not, how do you get away from rumination? I've asked so many people this question, and they'll say, watch TV. Yeah, distraction. I, yeah. I go on Facebook or something. And I'll say, well, no wonder you ruminate. That's not enough. So people need actual, practical, real strategies. And I sometimes say it's great to have a whole menu. Mindfulness actually helps people catch their rumination. If you practice mindfulness every day, then you start to notice when you start to ruminate. Because once you're caught up in rumination, it's much harder to stop. Yeah. So if a person wants to stop ruminating, first of all, practicing mindfulness helps them catch when is the first beginning of my rumination. But then if, if you don't have many strategies to break away from the rumination, just saying don't ruminate is not going to help somebody. But if they have 15 different options of how do I shift my focus in that moment, well, then they can say, all right, I'll try some of those and which ones work for me. And let's figure out which ones work best for myself. That becomes, I think, a useful approach. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like it might be a good book, 15 ways to get yourself out of depression. <laughs> when you're with your patients, do you prescribe meditations? Do you teach them how to meditate and how to work themselves in, in this way? First of all, I'll say, say my policy from many years ago is uh, if there's a meditation that's been supported by scientific research, then yes. But I won't teach Buddhist meditations that aren't supported by scientific research unless somebody explicitly asks me to. That's just a policy thing. So if somebody says to me, I'm curious about Buddhism and I want to learn this technique for this reason, and I think it's appropriate, then I will share that. But otherwise, I'll only teach meditations that have been shown to be effective in scientific research. I guess I'll say a couple of things. The one is I'll sometimes teach a technique. Second is sometimes without even formally teaching it, I'll just use aspects of a technique. You know, if I say, let's slow down and breathe, and so I'm not explicitly teaching a technique, but sometimes we'll actually go through a, a technique that's a meditation technique in the session without, not, I'm not saying this is meditation, I'll say, slow down, feel your feet on the floor, feel your breathing, and now let's focus on this. So that's the second way. And one last one I'll make though is nowadays, I have so many people who come to me for therapy who are using some of the meditation apps and things like that regularly and use them every day. And that's wonderful. It wasn't true five or 10 years ago, but it's true now. Yeah. Earlier when you were talking about self-compassion, you, you grounded it in an antidote in interdependence, um, trying to think, expand your idea of your place in the world. I don't know if you've read Robert Thurman's new book, Wisdom is Bliss, that I'm starting to read and loving, but one of his big realizations and statements in there was how meditation may not really be that useful until you have some sense of interdependent, that if you sit down and meditate, but you think of yourself as a hard, separate, unitary, solitary being outside of the world, then even if you're following all the <laughs> instructions, it may not be of that much benefit. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that aspect of Buddhist meditation practice isn't always included in these therapeutic approaches to meditation. So can you talk a little bit more about that interdependence wisdom and how that can get into helping our delusions? Yeah. First of all, I totally agree with that point. And um, well, actually, I guess I'm going to step back for a second. If you think about it, what is meditation, actually? And, you know, the Buddhist definition of meditation, 
and the popular culture's definition of meditation are not the same. You know, and even in popular culture, what is meditation? And I just think that's worth asking as a question to actually contemplate, what do we mean by meditation? I sometimes say, like, focusing on mindfulness of the breathing, which is what some people mean by meditation. And I sometimes say, that's like stretching in the context of the Olympics. All the athletes stretch, but that's not one of the sports. Yeah, they don't uh, give a medal for it either. No, no, you don't get a medal. <laughs> and so mindfulness of breathing is not all we mean by meditation. That's like a warm-up, actually, in general, for other meditations, oftentimes. Not, it's not always, but it often is. So that's one point. And then another is, I think what Thurman was getting at in his book was, Meditation is habituation in a way to something, habituating to mindfulness of the breathing or habituating to love or habituating to compassion. And if somewhere deep down you're holding on to some kind of wrong understanding about yourself, then if you dwell on that in meditation, you're actually strengthening it. Yeah. And that becomes the problem. For example, if somebody approaches meditation from a narcissistic perspective, right, maybe they're focusing their breath, but if deep down their focus is actually a kind of grasping at their self-importance, then their meditation is reinforcing self-importance, which is not the goal of meditation, but that can happen. And so I think that's what it's getting at, is to recognize that we have to be aware of and work through those, or our mm -hmm. meditation reinforces negative habits. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember The Onion, his satirical newspaper, but it was easily 20 years ago where they had a headline that said, Monk gloats over yoga competition. I am the serenest. <laughs> I found that so funny, but... It's actually very relevant. Uh, it's a very relevant problem with uh, meditation or even yoga. Yeah. With this idea of the self and others' interdependence, um, another question you said you get a lot is about boundaries, of how we set healthy boundaries, how that contributes to a healthy mind. I'm also curious if boundaries are different for a Buddhist who's trying to have love and compassion <laughs> for all <laughs> beings and a, quote, normal person. So it's a big topic, but could you talk a little bit about boundaries and the kind of challenges people have with them and some of the antidotes you help people with? Yeah, this is a topic I've thought, well, one is, again, there's not a week that goes by where that doesn't come up in therapy, but also I've thought a lot about this in terms of a Buddhist view on that topic. And what, what I realized was that the only context in where Buddhist texts use the word boundary is in the context of retreat. They'll say, set up your retreat boundaries. But there's something in that in a sense that, and, and I guess, and as I've looked at Buddhist teachers and Buddhist teachings, actually, they don't use that term in other contexts that much, but it's actually humongous. It's huge there. There are all kinds of boundaries in Buddhism, actually, humongous numbers of them. And I think, actually, first of all, I think boundaries take courage, is one point I would make. Setting boundaries takes courage because people don't always like it when you set boundaries. And also, you're having to admit your own limitations. Take the example of the life story of the Buddha. The Buddha was a prince. He was married and had a young child. His father wanted him to take over the kingdom. And he set a humongous boundary. He said, no, I have to leave home. I have to cut my hair and give up my kingdom to pursue inner development, pursue enlightenment. And what a boundary, incredibly radical boundary. And what courage that would take, right? Like, in other words, at that moment, he knew very well his father, his wife, his child, none of them like that boundary, <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> and the reason I bring that up is we all in our daily lives, when we set boundaries, are going to have people who don't like it. But if you get angry, that's a sign you need to set a boundary and you haven't set it yet because you're not admitting the truth 
actually to other people of where your own limit is. So boundaries are about recognizing, uh, taking care of ourselves actually, and recognizing I'm going to get frustrated or I'm going to get angry or I'm going to get irritable unless I stop at this point or unless I ask another person to stop at this point or step away if they're going to go beyond that point. And sometimes I think for, uh, for Buddhists, we're actually worse. Sometimes I've noticed, like myself included, that sometimes we Buddhists can be phony, actually. There's this ideal of patience, which is the goal, right? Bodhisattvas become incredibly patient. But to say, well, I'm not that patient yet. If I'm going to take care of myself, not take care of myself in some narcissistic way, but take care of myself in the sense of my mind, mm -hmm. right? then I have to avoid certain situations where I'm going to get overwhelmed and become irritable or become angry or become impatient. And that's part of the practice. And it doesn't mean that someday I won't go beyond that and be able to engage in that situation. So boundaries are about, like, if I'm going to lose my love, for example, if I go this far, I'm going to lose my love, then I need to stop here. And it's admitting that to ourselves and then asserting that with others, which takes bravery and courage and honesty. Mm. Yeah, I've gone through that myself. In our tradition, too, there's a sense of fake it till you make it, where you try to like pretend <laughs> that you have compassion. But I found I fall across the border sometimes into, uh, you know, denial or bypass, which is really harmful. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think the, the more conventional forms of couples therapy and psychology have helped a lot just to be quite tender and honest with my partner and say like, hey, I'm starting to feel really angry <laughs> about this thing or hey, I want to spend some more time with you or what these places where you're quite vulnerable and maybe you admit uh, a need. I, I think it's hard as a Buddhist because in some ways we're supposed to just be happy with the pure nature of our mind or something like that. But I don't know. It's okay to want to be loved and, and be embedded in the social reality and, and so on. Do, do you do you see that ever in some of your, your experiences? I, I mean, I think it's so touching what you just shared, right? There are different terms in Buddhism for this, but there's like spontaneous compassion. Then there's compassion that takes effort to cultivate, and that's good. But pretending to have compassion is not <laughs> useful. And I've made that mistake so many times. You're like, you know, so in other words, if it takes work to come to real compassion for somebody, that's good work. But pretending to be compassionate has no value at all. It's not actually a practice at all. That's a version of narcissism, actually, isn't it? Like, and that's where we like co-opt a kind of fake version of, and we all do it, I think, we, where we co-opt and create a fake version of Buddhist practice. And actually, I'll just share one more point about that. I remember, oh, this many years ago, when I was in graduate school, I was like working with people with autism spectrum disorders, and I was doing graduate school, and I was like, very busy. And then I read this quote from one of my teachers, Lama Zopramshay, that said, when you begin to cherish others from your heart, pure joy arises. And I remember at the time I thought, what's mm. he talking about? I'm totally stressed out. I'm like trying to do graduate school. I'm not feeling joy at all. And then I had to stop and realize I was doing things that looked kind. I was studying psychology. I was working with people. Yeah. But I was so stressed out that I wasn't actually feeling love, cherishing others in my heart. And therefore, I wasn't having joy genuine love and compassion bring joy you know so that's one thing it's been a measure for me ever since is if i'm mm. not feeling joy then my love or compassion are not love or compassion there's something deceiving myself yeah it's a very subtle point and powerful point i think you're making you know, that just to repeat it like, fake compassion is a form of narcissism it rings true <laughs> from my personal experience <laughs> and then, but then effortful compassion is beneficial and then spontaneous compassion is amazing if yeah. and when it occurs. Yeah, I think that's why it's helped me to fall through to actually just being honest about my feelings, like you're saying. Like that's a kind of reasonable boundary instead of pretending 
that you're just filled with love and compassion to say what you're really filled with in a way that's not obviously insulting or hurtful, but just honest from your own side. It's like, ah, this is what I'm feeling right now. And that's courage. That takes courage, right? To be real. And another question we talked about was actually kind of a funny one was about pleasure. Uh, We've been talking about, you know, problems, which is normal again, it's psychology, but sometimes we feel guilty for enjoying things. So I'm curious if you can talk about what you do with pleasure from a psychological and a Buddhist psychological point of view. Like, how does pleasure become beneficial? You talk about the escapism of watching TV, and, but is there a beneficial way to engage in the various pleasures of life? I want to give two different answers, or maybe more than two, but I'll start with mm-hmm. the Western psychological point, which I think mm-hmm. is very relevant. Western psychology sometimes talk about affect regulation or emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Again, I often say to people in the context of therapy, what are the range of things that bring you emotional regulation and happiness and contentment and joy Mm -hmm. and peace? And if people have a short, many people have a very short list of those Mm -hmm. things. And so one point I would make is what happens then is that our emotions get dysregulated. If you don't have things that bring you peace and joy and contentment, and then Shanti Deva in his guides to the Bodhisattva's way of life says, hatred grows from unhappiness. And if we're unhappy, we're stressed out. And we're, and we're stressed out, then we eventually get irritable. And then we become angry. And then we become resentful. And then we, and all these other things, all these other negative states arise. Mm-hmm. So one point I would make, a very simple point, is if there's not, if there aren't simple pleasures in your life and ways of finding contentment and joy, then you're going to become dysregulated. And you're going to be a negative presence in the world. That's one point. And then another point I would make, I was reflecting on this after we spoke, and I was like, of course, like people sometimes know the first noble truth is the truth of suffering in the Buddhist context, but that's not, you know, that's a diagnosis. It's not a prescription. In other words, the, the Buddha wasn't prescribing suffering. He was diagnosing it. He was saying, <laughs> right. people suffer, and we suffer all different ways. But then I was reflecting, like, actual Buddhist practice and the path is all about joy. And, and again, I quoted Shantideva, or I paraphrased them. And, you know, Shantideva says the Bodhisattva goes from bliss to bliss, or from joy to joy. That's the nature of the Bodhisattva's way of being in the world. And I was contemplating that the other day, and I was thinking, like, you know, because I already said, like, Lama Zopramashi's quote, right, that when you cultivate love, immediately joy arises. And, I, and when I, for me, I, when I think about that, and this is just the most basic level, as I, I often think back to when I was a kid, and I would go to see my grandparents, and I would get off the plane, and I think of their faces when they would see me. I, like I would come around the corner off the plane, and they would look overjoyed and so happy and running over. And, and like they were getting the joy of love. I could see on their face that experience, and their love gave them joy. I was the object of it. As a yeah, kid. yeah. So one level of joy also is, you know, the pleasure comes from that. Bodhisattvas love more and more. So like they're in love with everybody. So they're like, wow, a bodhisattva walks around all day, like my grandparents at the airport. Everybody they see, they're overjoyed. Mm-hmm. I'll just share one more reflection I was having. In the Buddhist context, I was like, there are these long discussions about kinds of bliss. I'm talking about like in the Sutrayana teachings and the Tantric teachings, mm-hmm. all of those teachings, like they teach this kind of bliss and that kind of bliss, and there are 16 blisses, and there are seven levels mm-hmm. of bliss, and there are eight blissful states. And I was like, we don't even have the language for that. Like, yeah. in our culture, we don't even know what that is. We don't have words. As Buddhist translators, they try to come up with words to capture what are these. And my point, I guess, is as a Buddhist, you're supposed to have bliss, actually. That's not just the Vajrayana teaching. That's true in the Sutrayana teachings. Like, the goal is 
to live in a way that's totally blissed out. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I, I think there's huge room for pleasure in both psychology, <laughs> Western psychological analysis, and also Buddhist. Bob Thurman sometimes makes a funny point. He says, when people are too happy, then some, like, actually, I've had patients come to me and say, am I manic? And I said to them, you're in love. What are you talking about? You're not <laughs> manic. You're like, you're like, like yeah. you're, we're supposed to be blissful sometimes, more of the time. Our problem is not that we're not joyful enough. And especially these more advanced people like our teachers who went through hell literally in their lives and yet are happier than anyone we've ever encountered. Um, but it isn't commonsensical, I think, for the average person to say, because you mentioned the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a being who dedicates all their effort forever to benefiting others. So it doesn't, I, I don't think for everybody it immediately follows that giving up all thoughts of yourself will lead to the greatest happiness you've ever experienced. Could, could you unpack that a little bit and explain why that's true? Yeah, I guess I'll, what I'll say is actually, I think we all have little bits of that. I'll give two different examples. Like a couple of days ago was my partner's birthday. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept trying to think, like, I, I was contemplating what would bring joy. It was so fun to come up with what can I give her? And then I came up with a few ideas. And what I realized was like, I couldn't tell who got more joy out of it. I mean, she was very joyful because I I hit the mark. But I got at least as much joy as she did. If you watch a parent, if you're a grandparent or a parent at a holiday when they're giving presents to their kid, if you watch the kid's face, that can be fun. But if the kid's really enjoying it and you turn to the face of the person giving the present and you see the joy on their face, like, that's the bodhisattva. Bodhisattvas have that only more so. Yeah. And then the other example I sometimes think of is I think back the first time you fell in love and the kind of blissful experience where you forgot yourself because you were mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. madly in love with somebody else you know so you can think of these little moments like or that's not a little moment they're all significant moments but for most of us those are like time limited and then you think bodhisattva lives in that person who is just first falling in love or like the person who's giving the gift on a mm-hmm. holiday morning they're like that every day i think that's a way of starting to relate yeah yeah the joy of giving and again, it's that other care is also self-care, right? If yeah. you're really taking care of others, you're taken care of. I think the language is actually very confusing when it says bodhisattvas don't worry about their own well-being. They only worry about yeah. the welfare of others. We think that means like they don't eat or they like don't sleep. Or And what they're talking about is not that. What they're talking about is like when my grandparents were looking at me or whatever, when I was giving the gift or like I wasn't thinking, oh, will she think I'm great because I'm giving her this gift? I was thinking, oh, I really want her to like be happy. And of course, that makes oneself happy. That's what they're getting at. It's not some kind of self-neglect. Yeah, you know, I've, I've also started to feel this recently as people's masks are coming off. I've just started to see with my own mind what a big deal it is to see people's smiles because yeah. the smiles have been masks and uh, we don't have those signs of whether we are bringing happiness to another person. You know, you can see little crinkles in their eyes or something, but <laughs> I just notice how much my own mind is transformed. Oh, what a beautiful point. There's this term engaged Buddhism that Thich Nhat Hanh coined for Buddhist work that benefits the world. And I think your work as a therapist for sure fits in that category. But I wanted to, to ask you if you think there is a, some uniquely Buddhist way of benefiting the world. Is it the same whether you're Buddhist or not, or from the Buddhist psychological worldview? Are there different ways that we engage and help others. First of all, I think this podcast is an example of engaged Buddhism. <laughs> Thank you for saying uh, that. 
<laughs> I think that makes you you happier than me. <laughs> when you said it earlier, no, because you know how that is. Sadly, I'm not a bodhisattva. So for me, I have self-critical thoughts. Oh, that's really nice. But then I see how sincerely you really 100% mean it. So that makes me happy. I remember one of our teachers saying, oh yeah, it was with one of my teachers. I won't say who it is, but I, I told my teacher how much I appreciated their qualities and how wonderful they are. And, uh, and then the teacher said, well, it, it's your virtue to see it that way. Like, I'm so happy that you see it that way. <laughs> and I'm so happy for you. <laughs> wow, that is a very wise answer because the teacher is like a Western teacher who, you know, who knows how they see themselves, but just to appreciate that I saw them <laughs> as a perfect teacher. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. yeah, in terms of your general point, though, yeah. actually, I'll, sh- I'll share something which is like over the last, oh gosh, year or so, year and a half, I was thinking about that question a lot. And I started realizing that, like, I was thinking back about like some of my hero, hero you know, people, people I just have great respect for in, in Buddhist mm-hmm. history, for example, who had, you know, humongous positive impacts on their society that they were living in. And one thing I started realizing in terms of engaged Buddhism is that as a white middle-aged American male who's liberal also it was easy to project onto what they were doing my assumptions and my cultural mm-hmm. biases and then as I really thought deeply about it I thought oh what they were doing and what I think of as activism or social engagement aren't quite the same and what I started realizing was that like like a Buddhist worldview, right, is that as long as people have mental afflictions, right, hatred and craving and greed and so on, then the world is going to have problems. And I guess what started to strike me was that as I look at the history of Buddhist engagement, when it's at its best anyway, I think that usually what it's actually about is trying to create contexts that are peaceful enough and safe enough so that others can practice the path. I think we have a certain idea in our cultural context about what is the goal of engagement. Our ideas come in our own cultural context and subcultural context. But anyway, I guess my broader point is, as I've been contemplating this, I actually think that in the Buddhist context, engagement is about helping individuals, isn't it? Because it's always individuals. It's helping individuals to gain a little more understanding of their own mind and to replace some ignorance with wisdom or to replace some Mm -hmm. selfishness with love Mm -hmm. and that in a buddhist context that's the only way to make the world a better place i was thinking about an example like some historical examples of buddhist masters who helped stop wars or stop Mm -hmm. conflicts and i was like they were wise they knew there was going to be another conflict there was going to be another war it wasn't going to be some permanent solution but what they were trying to do actually was create context. One is where people weren't creating horrible suffering for each other and negative karma with each other. But the other is to create context where maybe for a while those people would practice something good and learn to practice love. And therefore, the, those people would be better and then the world would be that much better. Mm. But I think it's quite a realistic view in a way, whereas I think sometimes my own views in the past have been pretty unrealistic. Yeah, you know, you make me reflect a little bit on how Today, there's a bit of going back in time and judging past heroes against new revised, mostly liberal (laughs) standards of behavior. But you make me think there might be a whole other way of doing that without criticizing that at all. There's very good reasons to do that. But you make me think there's another side to that too, of going back to think, wow, 
despite this person's bias and, and, and patriarchal attitude and so on, look how much good they managed to do still. So. Yeah, because isn't yeah. it like, yeah. was there room for them to actually cultivate in themselves or help somebody else to cultivate yeah. actual love, for example, or actual compassion yeah, yeah. or actual wisdom? Yeah. You know, because we all have our blind spots and faults and what is there anything else you might want to add before we close off the interview the only thing to be honest is just like my own feeling of appreciation that, that here we are trying right yeah in ourselves and and in the world to, to focus on things that have meaning and that i'm going back to what you said earlier which i found very mm-hmm. touching which is the honesty thing to be honest with oneself and with others and i guess my point is i like, just hope that that from this people take that away the sense of pause and be honest with yourself and ask what matters you know and what's actually worth your focus we've talked about many different things right like, but for people to answer that for themselves like what's actually worth their focus and what's the truth for them in that moment how do they actually feel and then what do they actually want to focus on some sense of genuine meaning to them i hope that's what comes out of this yeah talk about taking control of your life taking control of your mind right yeah, and, and what you, yeah, where your attention goes. That's something we can control to some extent, yeah. isn't it? Where we put our own attention. And nobody can yeah. force us to attend to things we don't. We, we can make, but we make good or wise or unwise choices. We all do. <laughs> so actually on that note of where we put our attention, you've agreed to lead a meditation for us, which will air in the next episode. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that meditation is before we say goodbye? Sure, yeah. What I was thinking to, to do is a meditation. Um, the themes will be connection, Mm-hmm. gratitude, warmth. But what I want to actually hope to focus on is a felt sense and a real experience of what it's like to both receive and give love. And as I said earlier, like self-care and other care are interdependent and receiving and giving love are interdependent. And so to just like to connect experientially to that sense of what it's like to both receive and give love, that if you want to receive love, the best thing to do is give it. If you note your actual receiving of love, that will also enhance your ability to give it. Mm. it's a meditation on that yeah beautiful all right thank you so much lauren for agreeing to do this interview and giving such honest and helpful answers i really appreciate it i think people are going to enjoy it a lot thank you for such a heartfelt discussion thanks for joining a skeptic's path to enlightenment in my conversation with psychologist and author dr lauren ladner If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by our donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Parry for audio mastering, Jason Waterman for marketing, and Isabella Asibal for digital production and social media. We wish you a wonderful day.